In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and this time round, we're doing Oppenheimer, which you might be sitting there going, hang on, I've heard this one. I've heard that. No, you've heard that one. No, wait, wait, if you like, this is Oppenheimer 2 Electric Boogaloo, or Oppenheimer 2 This Time It's Per. Basically, I'm going back into the movie. I feel that as the time of recording and release, you will have had ample time to see it. And whereas in the first one, I talked about a bit about Christopher Nolan and a bit about the history around Robert J. Oppenheimer. This time around, I'm going to go more into the movie, the beats, and also what it tells us about the state of the film industry in America and links very subtly back to a previous episode I did about the strikes, the actors and writers' strikes that, that are going on in America, at least at the time of Oppenheimer. So, lots to be getting on here, and if you do want to know more about Robert J. Oppenheimer and the arguments to and from about the creation of the nuclear bomb, etc., listen to the first episode, okay? That's the one that will tell you all the history of the man and the events of 1945 and then on into the 1950s. Instead, let's start with the movie. And if I told you at the beginning of the year that a three-hour talkie movie rated R in America and 15 in Britain, so in other words, an adult movie, a movie not available for viewing for all, that that would outgross Fast and Furious 10 around the globe and in the US, you would have said, I'm crazy. Why would anybody do that? Yes, Christopher Nolan is incredibly well-respected, and he lives in an interesting world because, on the one hand, he's made three Batman movies, so he's in the comic book, very much pop culture world, but at the same time, a lot of people say that his movies lack a level of emotionality and are a bit like Stanley Kubrick's movies. And if you're going to be compared to a director, that's one of the directors you want to be compared to. But Kubrick was not seen as necessarily a general crowd pleaser. So to be able to create movies that are highly regarded comic book films, which gross over a billion dollars, and also be seen as intellectual 
that's a very rare place to be. In terms of living directors right now, it's probably Nolan and Spielberg. Now, undeniably, Spielberg is the master, and I'm sure Nolan would agree with that. But Nolan is, of his generation, top of the field. There are, of course, other people out there. I'm not saying that Nolan is the greatest director ever. For example, Terrence Malick is still with us, and he creates amazing movies. But the difference there is, they're not exactly crowd-pleasers. They don't have big box offices. Your favourite current director is either a complete populist, Michael Bay, or is somebody that might be making really interesting movies, like Jordan Peele, for example, but they don't gross the same amount of money as Nolan films. So he is this rare breed of somebody who can do both. And Oppenheimer proves that. In a way, Oppenheimer is a rebuttal to this thing about how he is a technical, rather cold, emotionless director. Why do I say that? Because it's three hours of talking. It's all about the characters. The whole movie hangs on Killian Murphy's role, and he does an amazing job of being quite an odd man. He is not a hugely emotional man. At no point does he have that big screaming argument which you get for the on-your-consideration-at-the-Oscars kind of scenes. He, in a way, almost distills the image of Christopher Nolan, but there's plenty of emotion whirling around him most notably Florence Pugh, quite rightly playing a very damaged woman because the actual woman was very much like that. I will talk about a couple of historical inaccuracies. Shall we call them dramatic flair? And the actual pure history stuff, that's in another podcast. But I will give you three examples of historical inaccuracies in the movie, which I will kind of let pass. So there is a scene where... I did say in the previous episode he genuinely did try to poison his lecturer while he was in England and he put a cyanide in an apple. That all happened and that's in the movie. But for added drama, you see a meeting with the lecturer, with Oppenheimer, and also Niles Bohr is there as well, the famous Danish physicist. And while Bohr did meet Oppenheimer on several occasions, and most of the stuff around him is absolutely true, the, the point where he tells the story about how he didn't have enough oxygen and passed out when he was being shipped in a bomber, British bomber, during World War II, that's true. I guess they had to fit that in because it's just such a great story. But the point is, he wasn't there when the apple was poisoned. And as he's sort of playing around with the apple, you're sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, is Oppenheimer going to kill his hero? No, that never happened. Sorry about that. But it's a bit of drama, and it doesn't really change anything. It's just a slight retelling of a real weird story. Then we have the death of Florence Pugh. Now, this was a very damaged woman, but just briefly, you see her drowning herself in the bathtub, but then just briefly, you also see a slightly different version of the scene. And one of the genius things that Nolan does is he does show the same scene from slightly different perspectives with slightly different performances from these people. So, for example, there is a bit where Strauss, played by Robert Downey Jr., you see him laughing when Oppenheimer's explaining about whether they should ship isotopes and starts talking about how 
they're less useful than electronic components, but more useful than a sandwich. And it gets a laugh and you can see the first time you see it, you see Robert Downey Jr. sort of snigger to it. It's like, yeah, that's a good line. But later on, when, spoiler for history that's been around for over 60 years, and also you've had plenty of time to see the movie, it turns out that Strauss, the Robert Downey Jr. person, who you initially think is one of the great allies of Oppenheimer, turns out to be his great enemy, and that this is one of the turning points. You see it again later where he's quite sour about how he's been humiliated by Oppenheimer's flippant line. That's really clever. And so going back to Florence Pugh, did she drown herself? Or, very briefly, you see a black-gloved hand pushing her in there. In other words, she was murdered, probably by the FBI or CIA. Now, it's so brief as to not really count, and who knows exactly what happened with various clandestine operations and the CIA. Certainly, if they did it, that wouldn't be the worst thing the CIA has ever been provably done in its history. But there's no evidence, and it's far, far, far more likely that, yes, this woman was a communist, but she was a deeply damaged individual with lots of mental health issues, and sadly, people in that situation do sometimes end their lives. So, on balance, that is the far, far, far more likely result of what happened. It's a tragedy either way, but it probably isn't the US government being all suspicious. And then the third thing, and I did say this in the previous one, is he never actually said the I am become death the destroyers of world when the bomb went off. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. The reason why that crops up is it's from an interview in the 1950s when he said when he saw the bomb, it brought to mind that phrase. And so he would never said it right in front of anybody else. Maybe he's doing his own bit of myth-making there, or maybe he genuinely did think that. He was an amazingly smart man who did teach himself multiple languages very, very quickly. And he was a genuine genius, simple as that. To put it in is something that technically is historically inaccurate, but is absolutely in the spirit of the man. This is one of these things I've said in the past with some of my other episodes. I will give people passes if you can tell that they're trying to get things right overall, because they do have to fit things into a movie which has a beginning, middle, and end. Or in the case of Christopher Nolan, he has a beginning followed by the nearly at the end, followed by the middle bit, followed by the end bit, followed by the end, which was also preeminently shown towards the beginning. Yeah, it's a Nolan movie. <laughs> Um, so, let's move on from all that historically relevant stuff and instead just talk about some of the great acting that's going on. What inspired this particular episode is I went to see it again. It was a little, a little part of me thinking, do I really want to spend three hours of my life, plus all the ancillary travel time and trailer time and advert time, do I really want to spend a whole afternoon doing it again? It's like, well, I think I should. I was really impressed with it the first time around, but is that bias or is that because I'd hyped it up in my head? If a three-hour talky movie withstands a second viewing within a couple of months of seeing it, then it's a pretty good movie. And I tell you right now, I absolutely loved it the second time. I'm not going to turn around and say it was better on the second watch, but 
with Robert Downey Jr., because he's so multi-layered, watching it again, it's almost like at the beginning of the film, when at the time he comes across as the good guy, you can see he's seeding the bits of the turnaround and betrayal later on. It's almost like on second viewing, he's doing a different performance, which is very much like Kevin Spacey in The Usual Suspects. First time you watch it, you very much think Kevin Spacey is one thing. The second time you watch it, you think, oh, that's really clever. So I would thoroughly recommend you watch it a second time or watch it on streaming or whatever. The point is, Oppenheimer, the performances are all singularly perfect. Rami Malek is great at it as well, because he is, of course, an Oscar-winning actor. And yet, for most of his time, the running gag is he keeps coming up with a clipboard and keeps being pushed away and like, go away, you little man. Then, towards the end, when he's at the hearing, you think he's going to get Oppenheimer, but he doesn't. Which just shows you what an honourable little man he was. The, the, the person he's playing for the record. But for Rami Malek to be able to play something like that, which is pretty much the polar opposite of Freddie Mercury, 10 out of 10 for Rami Malek to be in that. And the thing is, it isn't a cold movie. Yes, there's lots of science. Yes, there's lots of very dark subject matter. But you get Matt Damon, who, as General Groves, you wouldn't think would be the heart of it. But the warmth and care that he has for Oppenheimer is great. Now, he is a patriot, and he is there to, in essence, use Oppenheimer. There are moments of tension between the two, but there are also moments of humour. And it's just, everybody has brought their A-game. And it doesn't matter whether you're Rami Malek with maybe two minutes, three minutes of screen time, or you're the central character of Killian Murphy. Everybody is great in the film, and it's beautifully directed. And as some people have said, it does help that pretty much every scene has powerful music underneath it. You could call that cheating, but if you stripped away the music, and indeed there is the great speech after the detonation of the Trinity device, there is this amazing speech where, to begin with, you can hear the crowd, but then the crowd fade away, and you then get this almost hallucination of what it was like to have had the bomb and the, the paper skin and the, the ashen figures on the, on the bottom, on the floor. It's just a remarkable moment of direction. So many times, a scene of great acting is enhanced by moments of great direction. It is an absolute tour de force, and I have no doubt it's going to at least be nominated for a whole bunch of Oscars. Whether or not it wins, don't know. Killian Murphy will definitely be nominated for Best Actor. I think he should win. It is an amazing, this huge endeavour of both filmmaking and history hangs on him and his abilities to be able to portray this man who he can't possibly understand. Almost nobody understands quantum mechanics. And so for Killian Murphy to come across so convincingly to play a man of a different time and different place. The other interesting thing, just sidebar on this, is Killian Murphy's once again playing a man from the first half of the 20th century, and he was in Britain in the 1920s. Do you know who else was in Britain in the 1920s? Thomas Shelby. Well, Thomas Shelby is a made-up character, and the Peaky Blinders, as I did an episode on it, they didn't even exist after World War I, so pretty much the whole thing is made up. Theoretically, you could do a crossover movie of Peaky Blinders meets Oppenheimer for some madcap 
activities, drama, where Killian Murphy is playing the two main central characters. This summer, Michael Caine. I've got a job lined up. Thomas Shelby. Mr. Kruger. That's right. Six weeks ago, a friend of yours met with an accident on this very road. So? Do you mind if I show you how? They are very, very dangerous people. Well, fortunately, so are we. And Robert Oppenheimer. Five, four, three, two, one, go! Now I am become the destroyer of worlds. You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off! Star, in the Italian job, 1920. That would be awful. Please, nobody make that film. <laughs> no matter what, how you look at it, it's a great, great movie. Obviously, it got pushed by this weird, unpredicted phenomenon called Barbenheimer. And yes, yeah, we've got to give respect where respect's due to Barbie. It's now the number one movie financially around the world. And it's aimed at a different market to Oppenheimer. But here's the thing, let's put Oppenheimer into context. Like I said, it beat Fast and Furious 10. But let's let's break down the numbers. Hey everybody, there's nothing more exciting than talking about budgeting. Right, so, if I told you that Fast and Furious 10, or Fast X as it's called, even though a Roman numeral has never been used in any of the Fast and Furious movies before, there's just no rhyme and reason to the naming of these things. But anyway... If I told you that it grossed globally $704 million, sounds pretty good, right? That's a chunk of change. You could live on that. Then I'm going to tell you that its production costs were $340 million. And you might be sitting there going, well, I mean, you, you double that and you're still not even at 704 So that that's money. That serious money is being brought in. But what you need to be aware of is, of course, when you buy a movie theatre ticket, that money doesn't all go back to whoever made the film. Obviously, the cinema itself is not a charity, and they take a cut. And various people take a cut. And when I said the production costs are 340 that doesn't include all the promotion and marketing costs, which you probably have to add give or take another hundred million on top of for the poster adverts and tv adverts around the globe that's a lot and so the basic mathematics is is whatever the budget is if you multiply that by two and a half times you need to hit that number for you to start making money it's a general rule it is not a precise accounting rule but it gives you a rough idea so if you do that, you can see that, uh-oh, 340 times by 2.5, cutting the maths out, is less than 704 million, which is what it took. 
Now, that is just on theatrical release. In other words, the money it makes being out there in movie theaters. It doesn't include things like revenue from streaming, other deals, DVD or Blu-ray sales, being able to be sold onto, onto airplanes and things like that. All of this stuff together generates more money. There is no doubt that by the time all that cash flow has come in, also all the merchandising, the t-shirts, the presumably sleeveless t-shirts so you can show off your guns, all this kind of stuff together, no doubt that Fast and Furious 10 will eventually turn a profit for Universal. But what you want is to have turned a profit in the movie theatres so that then everything else is just cash. And Barbie is a great example of that. It cost about $140 million to make production costs. Okay, let's add $100 million on top of that in terms of marketing. Obviously, all the social media Barbenheimer stuff, that's all free of charge. That's just viral marketing. It's gone viral. That's what marketing departments love to see because it doesn't cost them anything, but it starts getting people talking about this stuff for free. Excellent. So let's call it, all in, a quarter of a billion. So how much does it have to make to start turning a profit? It has to bring in $750 million to start. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection. Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Turning in a profit. Give or take, all right? And I'm being a little bit generous there with the, the numbers. However, considering it's brought in over $1.3 billion, that's 
more than, well, it's not quite double, but it's nearly twice as much again. So there are hundreds of millions of dollars flowing into Warner Brothers, making that money yay. Now, there is discussion about Margot Robbie potentially being nominated for an Oscar for this, but it is worth pointing out comedies generally don't do well at the Oscars. It's very, very rare for a comedy to ever outright win something. You might get something like Life is Beautiful, which is a comedy, yes, but it's in a foreign language, ooh, worthy, and also it's about the Holocaust, so it can't be that funny. So all of those things in mind, when you put them all together, that's why you get Roberto Benigni winning the Best Actor Oscar. I don't know if Margot Robbie's going to do it, and this is where I bring in Oppenheimer, because Oppenheimer cost a hundred million to make and brought in, give or take, eight hundred million. So that it again, it's made a ton of money for Universal. So from the same group that brought you Fast and Furious 10, also brought you Oppenheimer. So overall, if you put those two together, they've made money from movies this summer and they're happy. But they're really happy with Oppenheimer because it's also a worthy, a prestige project. What happens with this hearing? Well, he's not going to get confirmed. And one of the people that voted against him is John F. Kennedy. He's from the next big political period of history. Yeah, he is. I love it. Perfect way to set up the sequel. Well, Oppenheimer 2, The Rise of JFK is tight. Yeah, I mean, why not keep that door open, I guess? And this is why I'm putting in how much the movie industry has changed. And the example I'm going to give of that is The Godfather, which came out in the early 1970s, and you've at least heard of it if you haven't seen it. And the point is this. By the end of the year of release, it was the biggest grossing movie of all time. It subsequently lost out to other movies, but if it's the biggest grossing movie of all time, that means Hundreds of millions of people around the world have gone to see this film. They have opinions about the film, whether they loved it or hated it, or who their favourite character was, etc. And then it sweeps the Oscars. And that just doesn't happen in the 2020s, or the new millennium, shall we say. Because those prestige projects tend to be small films. You get the very unusual Shape of Water, the Guillermo del Toro movie, a sort of high gothic romance, which, well, a high gothic romance where girl meets fish creature, girl loses fish creature, girl gets fish creature back again, and it's a doomed romance. Unusual, to be sure. Oscar-worthy, strangely, for that kind of genre movie, it won some Oscars. But it only grossed about $30 million in the US market. In other words, people did not run out to see the fish, fish person romance movie. <laughs> not making this up, by the way. And that's the difference. But ever since 2008, when, yes, you had Christopher Nolan's arguably greatest movie ever, The Dark Knight, was also the same year that Robert Downey Jr. had his comeback in... Iron Man. And so the MCU was kicked off the same year as The Dark Knight. And ever since then, superhero movies uh, have only got bigger and bigger and bigger. Now sometimes, again, the DC stuff, either it's complete hot garbage, 
or you get something like Joker, which cost 40 million for Warner Brothers. They didn't know if people wanted to see a movie centered around a villain, which had almost no action in it and was R-rated. There was going to be pretty extreme violence in it as well. It's, in essence, riffing off Scorsese films like Taxi Driver and King of Comedy. This is not the sort of stuff that screams box office in the 21st century. So it, they only gave him $40 million to make it. Joaquin Phoenix wins a Best Actor Oscar, and it grosses over a billion dollars. It grosses basically the same amount of money as The Last Skywalker. The Last Jedi? No, the Skywalker, Rise of Skywalker. That's what it's so unforgettable, so completely forgettable. The last of the trilogy movies is such a colossal disappointment. Rise of Skywalker cost over $250 million plus all the marketing, and yet it grossed the same as something that only cost $40 million, And that's the sound of Warner Brothers creating a whole swimming pool full of hundred dollar bills and jumping into it like Scrooge McDuck at the beginning of DuckTales, even though it's worth pointing out that if anybody's going to jump into a swimming pool full of gold, you're basically jumping, you are jumping into something very hard and you will die. I'm saying notes, not in thick stacks, but perhaps loosely leafed like that, and that might be falling into the equivalent of a big pile of leaves. And if anything that Assassin's Creed has taught us, if you fall into a pile of leaves or a big pile of hay from the top of a very tall tower, you're completely safe. That's just science. <laughs> anyway, the point is, these films make money. Oppenheimer, again, is one of these things where, like The Godfather, it's made a ton of money. And also, hundreds of millions of people have gone out to see it. And therefore... When it's announced in the Oscars, people care. People don't care if it's a gross of 20 million, 50 million. 10 out of 10 to A24, winning a bunch of Oscars for everything, everywhere, all at once. I was super impressed by that movie. And yet, it barely broke $100 million worldwide. Again, it's a bit like The Shape of Water. The people who saw it loved it. It absolutely deserved to win some Oscars. It was incredibly original. Jamie Lee Curtis and Michelle Yeoh, great to see these women who've both been acting in movies for decades finally getting their recognition. Great, glorious, highly original movie, but it didn't gross the same as Spider-Man No Way Home, which came out in the same year. And another example would be Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. In fact, those two movies were compared quite a lot because both of them had all these different alternate realities. And yet the micro-budgeted everything everywhere all at once did a better job and was more creative with alternate realities than this huge, stodgy, CGI-laden, mega-behemoth of Doctor Strange. So there are these comparisons, and the problem now is this split in the film industry that... Hollywood doesn't quite know what to do with. So we need some of these prestige projects to work. I'm really glad it did with Oppenheimer, but to give you again a comparison of how well it's done, this three-hour talkie movie, which is ruminating on the issues and moralities around nuclear holocaust, doesn't sound like a blockbuster, does it? And yet more people saw it than a Fast and Furious movie. 
I'm going to say there's hope for humanity yet, but let's compare it to how Christopher Nolan's movies have performed, not necessarily critically, but commercially. The movie before this was Tenet. Now, Tenet was in a very strange position because it came out in 2020, just after all the cinemas opened up again, and it was meant to save the live theatrical experience. In the end, it grossed double what it did in terms of its cost, but so many other things were going on there. It's a very hard to turn around and say, that's something that deserved to do well under the circumstances. There were so many other factors. We can almost push that one to one side. What's interesting, though, is there's an inadvertent pattern going on. We've got Oppenheimer, which is a historical epic. We go back, and there's a sci-fi movie, Tenet. Then you go back, and there's a historical epic, Dunkirk. And then you go back, and there's a sci-fi movie, Interstellar, which would therefore imply that the next movie will be another sci-fi film by Christopher Nolan. That's a theory. We have no idea what his projects are. So once we have got to the next movie, Dunkirk, Dunkirk did very well. Again, for historical epic, very unusual for them to be grossing over half a billion dollars. Christopher Nolan managed to do it with Dunkirk. Again, the budget was about a hundred million. Plenty of money made on that project. Well done. Then we go back to Interstellar, which is my youngest son's favorite movie of all time. Several people in my family put it in as Nolan's best and perhaps in the top 10 movies of all time. Not personally for me. I admire the film. I've said on many occasions I have a real problem with the ending of the film. It takes quite a long time to get things rolling at the beginning of the film. It almost works for me. It's four stars. Matthew McConaughey is great, and when people turn around and say that Christopher Nolan can't do drama or emotion, look at the Matthew McConaughey scene when he's looking at all the videos after he gets off the planet. It's a remarkable moment. It's, it's heartbreaking for anybody in any language. But that film was a big grocer. It grossed over $700 million, and now Oppenheimer has beaten it. The movie he made before Interstellar was the last of the Dark Knight trilogy, The Dark Knight Rises, and that was actually the biggest grossing of the three, even though that's the one with Bane, by the way, even though that's the one that's perhaps less well-regarded of the three, but by then, after The Dark Knight, people were so pumped to see what's he going to do next. Actually, he did really well with it. I'm going to say... I'm just sitting here thinking about it right now. I think both Interstellar and Dark Knight Rises are quite similar. Clearly not in content, but in the sense that fundamentally the core there is some of his best ever work, but he just misses the mark a little bit with both those movies, in my opinion. I also think the opening, when they're trying to get Bane out of the airplane and then they do this whole hijack on an airplane while it's in the air, and they use a real airplane fuselage clearly at one point, is remarkable in terms of its stunt work and choreography. No notes on that particular scene. I'm just jumping in here to say this is still Gem, but to remind you that my book Hollywood and History is out now. My basic sales pitch to you is this. If you like this 
podcast, you will like this book because I look at how Hollywood has portrayed history. Do they get it right? Why do they get it wrong? It's a chance to talk about lots of really cool movies as well. So if this sounds like your thing, then Hollywood and History by Jem Daduchu is available now wherever you buy books from. So once we're back into the Batman movies, we're in the early stages of Nolan's career. And so, for this to have been his biggest hit since his Batman trilogy, it's interesting when they tend to flash up Nolan, they'll say, the creator of Inception and The Dark Knight, and those are amazing films. Personally speaking, Inception is my favourite one of his films. But now they're going to legitimately be able to flash up Oppenheimer because it's one that's probably going to win some Oscars. And I've got no idea where. It could be sound mixing, sound editing. Certainly that's pretty amazing. But also on top of that, I would hope there's some actor Oscars. Maybe, finally, he gets Best Director. He has been directing some remarkable films for more than 20 years. I would say it's his time. So anyway, regardless, Inception personally is my favourite, but now Oppenheimer is such a big hit and so well regarded that it, on his next project it'll be from the man who did, let's say, Dark Knight, Inception, and Oppenheimer. Hey, remember that one that you all liked? So therefore, Nolan is in a great position moving forwards. And if it wins a bunch of Oscars, even if it doesn't, but it just gets nominated for, let's say, 10 Oscars, it'll be something that his faithful audience will want to see what happens next. And if it loses out to another movie, maybe it makes people watch that film instead. Maybe it's a smaller film. Or maybe it just leads to a whole load of anger on the internet. I'm going to say depressingly, I think I can guess which one it will be. So, when it comes to what's happening in Hollywood, they need some of these big epics. What's interesting, you get two films having their trailers before Oppenheimer, which are historical, worthy films. You've got Martin Scorsese's Killers of Flower Moon, and you've got Ridley Scott's Napoleon. Now, all three of these films are quite different, but perhaps the same kind of person will go and see all three. But what's interesting is, whereas with Oppenheimer, it's a universal picture, the other two are created by Apple Studios. They are going to end up on the Apple streaming service. And one of the other big Scorsese films was The Irishman, which had all kinds of problems with it, but that was given an almost unlimited budget by Netflix because they could get Al Pacino, Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese on a film that's always going to exist on Netflix. So the problems with the cinema is they've got to do a dance with the devil. We have trained ourselves because of COVID to stay at home and wait for the film. One of the reasons why Pixar isn't doing as well as it did is it had a bunch of its films being released on Disney Plus. And sometimes I'm sitting there going, yeah, that new Marvel movie seems to be getting okay reviews. I can wait three months before it comes on Disney Plus and I can just watch it there. I don't feel like I'm missing anything. And certainly when I watched Ant-Man Quantumania, I sat there going, oh my goodness, I'm glad I didn't pay money to see this thing. The point is, the Killing of Flowers Moon, the Killing of Flowers Moon, I think that's how what it's called, 
it looks amazing. You know, Scorsese has never made a bad film, and seeing it's the first time they brought together Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro into a Scorsese film, his two favourite actors, this should be something quite special. It will be insane if this just doesn't work, so it could be another one that's up for a whole load of Oscars. But more importantly is, it's got to be seen. Scorsese doesn't get lots of box office. It's very rare. The Departed is the one that won him the Oscar, but it wasn't the one that was his best reviewed, but it was also his biggest hit. So, I hope that does really well. And then you've got the Napoleon movie. Joaquin Phoenix, the guy who won an Oscar for Joker, is in it. Ridley Scott has done a whole slew of historical movies, some of them being largely forgotten. 1492, about Christopher Columbus, star Gerard Depardieu. There's a reason why you probably haven't talked about that one for a while. You've got, fairly recently, The Last Duel, which was another movie that was killed by COVID in 2020, and that almost immediately came out on Disney+, Plus to no fanfare whatsoever. Not his best film, but it's a good film. So there are all these good movies that he can do, and there's no doubt that it's going to look beautiful, because Ridley Scott's incapable of making an ugly-looking movie, and he loves history, and Napoleon's a great story. I am definitely going to be doing an episode on that movie when it comes out. I can already tell you there's a shot in the trailer where he fires a cannon at the pyramids. That never happened. But let's see how accurate the rest of the movie is. There's also a scene where he's charging into battle with a saber. He was an artillery officer, so he never did that. And the other problem, and I accept that this is just a problem of having an actor, is we're portraying 25 years worth of history. So when he attacked and conquered Italy, he did it as a 26-year-old young man. But we're going to have Joachim Phoenix, who is about the same age as Napoleon when defeated at Waterloo. The point is this. I don't know if those two films are going to make a load of money. I hope they do. The buzz around Napoleon in particular seems to be quite high at the moment. But if they do make a ton of money, and if they do get nominated or perhaps win some Oscars, we've got three films that are historical movies aimed at an older audience and perhaps showing people it doesn't just need to be whoosh-bang superheroes to make box office, which is what these companies exist for. With this movie, I think we have the opportunity to give the people what they've been dying for. What's that? Several J. Robert Oppenheimer sex scenes. And it doesn't just have to be a little indie film to win an Oscar. So I really hope that these films are of quality. I really hope, but I also doubt that they aren't of quality. And also, I hope that they do well at the box office because it means that we'll be getting if there's one thing hollywood has proven is it's completely unoriginal they just follow trends it's like oh people like people talking in dark rooms in history times let's do more of that yes please we could do with more historical movies rather than films that are well regarded and didn't even get close to making their money back at the box office like the northman which i did an episode on and Woman King, which I've mentioned in multiple different episodes. It's a shame about those, but ultimately box office talks. And if these people go and see these films, we'll get more films of that type, and that's no bad thing. That's it from me, as always. I, I, if this is the first time if you've tuned in for your Oppenheimer goodness, I'm at Gem Deducho on Twitter, or X, or whatever you want to call it, and let me know what you think. What do you think of my opinions? What do you think of my historical approaches on this? Also, 
give me ideas for other episodes happy to talk to you about them and please click subscribe please give us a review five stars if you can please thank you very much and as always another episode coming soon